Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. One of the benefits of genius is finding inspiration in unlikely places. Nia Shabi did exactly that, found the inspiration he needed to solve hard computational problems by looking at how biology had evolved to solve them already. Nia literally wrote the book on multiprocessor programming and then co-founded Neural Magic to explore the world of neural networks in a way that hadn't been done before. On this episode of Future of Tech, Nia explains how they are enabling neural networks to run on commodity CPUs at GPU speeds, what the current state of neural networks looks like, and why machine learning could unlock the answers to some of the biggest challenges we face today, with host Abishai Sharlin and guest host Moshi Friedman, the head of Amdocs Ventures. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Hi, Nir. Today at the Future of Tech, we are honored to host Nir Shavit, CEO and co-founder of Neural Magic and an MIT professor. Before we go, you know, deep into your company and, and, you know, the background and stuff, maybe share with us a bit, some details about your personal life, you know. How did you get into becoming a, an MIT professor? The juicier, the better, Nir. The juicier, the better. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have been living both in the United States and in uh, Israel for many, many years because I married a woman who uh, worked at MIT and at the Weizmann. And so my life has been uh, split between uh, Israel and U.S. for many, many years. And uh, I guess uh, that's how I ended up uh, essentially spending a lot of time in Boston, basically. And over the years, I spent time at MIT, but also at Sun Microsystems, which later turned to be Oracle. So I have a lot of background, both in industry and in uh, academia. And through all these years, I've also been a professor at Tel Aviv University for almost um, 29 years. I just uh, retired now. So, oh, nice. What's that like? How do the students compare between MIT and Tel Aviv? The students are amazing in both places. The number of, of exceptional ones at MIT is higher just by virtue of the population being from a bigger pool. Yeah. But overall, the quality of the students is amazing. And... And Israeli students are much more mature. So you can demand a lot more from them, even though they whine a lot more. They whine a lot more, but they can be, they can, they can take a lot more. So how's that? Fair enough. That's good. But it's a pleasure. Both places are wonderful to teach in. And honestly, I've taught the same classes in both places over the years. And um, I don't see that there's that big a difference, actually. Wow. Good. So I got to MIT, and at MIT, in, in about, about five or six years ago, I kind of decided I had enough of the pure multi-core stuff, and I want to move on to something else. And I moved into computational neurobiology in a field called connectomics. 
And I collaborated, I have been collaborating with uh, colleagues at Harvard for the last seven uh, years to actually take small slivers of uh, brain from mice and uh, rats and try to completely map them out. So that's, uh, that's what I've been doing in my research in recent years. Cool. And how did it go? What did you find? Or what did you uh, learn? Well, I'll tell you. So we're still in the process of, of getting a full map of, uh, we only have the first beginnings of, you know, full maps of cubic millimeters of brain. So a cubic millimeter of brain has about 100,000 neurons in it and about a billion synapses. It's an enormous little wow. graph. And so we're only at the very beginning of trying to map even that kind of a little tiny sliver, but we have high hopes. We have hopes of, of doing a whole mouse. It's done by, essentially, you take, a, you take a tiny sliver of brain, you know, a cubic millimeter is like a grain of salt, and you slice that about 30,000 times with a very fine knife. This is what my colleagues at Harvard do. And then they take images of this with an electron microscope. And um, a cubic millimeter is about two petabytes of data. So it's a huge piece of data. And then you run machine learning algorithms on it to do reconstruction. And my guys, my lab has been working on the, those machine learning algorithms. And that's how Neural Magic was founded. Basically, in trying to do that, I, you know, not being, uh, not knowing how to program GPUs, I started doing these algorithms on CPUs with the hope of moving on to later, um, once we had the algorithms, to do them on, on GPUs. But we found that we were getting GPU speeds on CPUs and said, hey, this is, a, you know, this is a real product here, maybe. Good. So maybe one step back. How did you find yourself starting with technology as a whole? Or what drove you to start with your BSc and MSc degrees in, in the Technion? Oh, I actually, I, I graduated from high school early and I went and studied biology for two years. And I... Like the theoretical stuff in the biology, but I didn't like the labs and the, all that kind of work. And so when I came out of the army, I, I decided this is, you know, I had taken a computer course. I mean, I decided all this kind of uh, dirtying my hands. Uh, my, my father was an, a biochemist. So, so I kind of knew this close up, you know, and so I had a dream to be like my dad, but that got shattered when I actually realized I don't like to dirty myself with all this kind of chemicals and stuff. And so going to something um, mathematical and clean was a natural thing. So then, uh, you know, when I came out of the army, I applied to the Technion. They accepted me and, uh, and yeah, and the rest is history. Yeah, it is. So um, how did you come into uh, artificial intelligence or, or this field as a whole? So really, I've, I've done multi-core uh, programming and multi-core algorithms for really three decades. And I had some kind of realization that um, basically it wasn't going, you know, the way we were, we were doing things is just, we can't keep on doing things, building the hardware and the algorithms the way we were doing. We have to scale. And so thinking about, you know, looking at brain graphs to do that was an idea that I had. But I went and talked to neurobiologists and nobody had brain graphs. And I, I actually talked to a colleague at MIT, now he's at Princeton, but at the time at MIT, Sebastian Sung, who said to me, look, Nir, nobody's going to give you the graphs. If you want to you know, get graphs, you have to help. Biologists are all engineers and they want, if you want to help with the engineering, then they will let you share the data with you. Otherwise, they don't need you. And so I joined that quest, basically. Give to get, in essence. 
You have to. Really, it really is like that, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Nir, you've mentioned several things that I'd like you maybe to elaborate a bit more. So you've mentioned the computer cannot scale or maybe need to scale more. Why? Can you share with us the why? It's not so much that, but it is that uh, what I think is that the paradigms that we were using for parallelism, okay, were not the right ones. And we're not the right ones because we weren't really using these notions of of sparsity and parallelism as much as we could in our actual applications. And so kind of trying to understand what it is that we can do to actually utilize such techniques in multicores was the reason for my quest, basically. I wanted to understand how you actually get better parallelism and, and less compute because If you look at the, the designs of our hardware, it really will not continue to scale. It just won't, right? So it's more about being distributed and more about putting systems together. And that means that communication is a bottleneck. And so I was hoping to understand from how brains work to better understand how you might actually structure such communication. That was where I started. I'm not saying that's where I ended, but that's where I started. It's almost an anti-tech thesis. You're saying we, what we've been engineering is kind of on one act, and maybe we need to look at evolution to get an idea. Right. And then the interest in artificial intelligence came because really the only way to do these mappings of neurons and get the networks is to really use machine learning on a massive scale. So it's not so much artificial intelligence, but rather machine learning, and specifically deep learning. So deep learning techniques are, are key to this kind of thing, to connectomics. The field that I research in. And so that kind of need to understand how machine learning algorithms work and how they can be made to scale to very large scales so that you can actually process data coming off a microscope at, you know, at about a terabyte an hour and process that at the microscope speed. That's the kind of size of a problem that we don't have the tools for doing right now. And that's, that's where I got to, to this whole thing. So I came at, at machine learning from the processing side, from the system side, not from the artificial intelligence side, if you will. Yeah, it, it's great, but I need another step in between. So I understood the, let's call it the, the hardware limitations or the computer scaling limitations. I understood the why, what you're looking for. Take me from the problem And why AI or machine learning helps you to work in a distributed way and to uh, kind of leapfrog over the limitation of technology as it was? Well, I, I would put it differently. I would say that, that what I've learned really is, is that computations based on machine learning can give you to a lot, in a lot of cases answers that are close enough to what would satisfy you at much less compute. You know, most of computer science prior to this, to the arrival of machine learning, was really all about algorithms that arrive at a, a precise ranking or ordering or answer, right? And a lot of problems that are um, NP-complete, we would find an approximation. And finding that approximation algorithm was very, very hard. Right? So for very we don't have that many problems for which we can arrive at an approximation. And if you you know asked uh, if I asked you now to 
come up with a good approximation algorithm for like scheduling a calendar or whatever, then it would take you a while, right? So this is where machine learning is helping you. It's just uh, allowing you to build algorithms that are approximate very quickly. Okay, that makes sense. And earlier you've mentioned that the field that you are exploring today is looking into the brain of mammals and trying to map them or to try and to learn. I'm trying to think, is the brain the ultimate power or are we trying to compare ourselves or to reach to something which is the brain, but maybe the peak can be uh, a much uh, bigger in capacity? So, and uh, Sure, I, I totally believe that we can go beyond what we are capable of, but uh, I think where we are right now on the development scale is years away from where we are. So, you know, there's a lot to do before we get to ourselves. And then there should be no reason why once we understand the principles, we wouldn't get to systems that are much smarter than we are. You know, sure. I think this is, uh, this is the path, right? I think that um, there's a lot of, um, efficiency to be had by building things that are a lot less than what we are. Okay. You know, in the digital economy right now, we've moved essentially to being completely, you know, living in, in the cloud in many cases. I mean, I find myself now, not just because of Corona, but just in general, buying more and more things online, but I don't have a salesman. There's no salesman there online to help me. You know, if I walked into a shoe store You know, and pick the pair of shoes, the salesman would help me find shoes that are similar that might fit my taste. You know, he has an intuition as to who I am and what I would like. And that's completely missing from the digital economy. You know, right now, the way the digital economy works is that I have to, if I want a pair of shoes, I have to go through many websites with thousands of pairs of shoes until I really find the right one. This is an example of where simple things like simple um, recommendation systems in machine learning can really change, completely change the economy. And it doesn't have to be human intelligence. It's just, you know, an algorithm to help you navigate the world, this digital world. And so, so I think that's an example of what we're going to see long before we see artificial intelligence and robots. And long before that, we're going to see a lot of human behaviors on a very small scale, manifest themselves in electronic systems because we as humans need those systems when we navigate the kind of large amounts of data that are out there and growing every day, basically. And Nir, how does machine learning help you do that? Uh, you know, machine learning has become a, uh, a catch-all for intelligent systems, but, but how do you see machine learning really filling the void and bridging the gap between data and people? You know, just like in the example that I said about the, you know, replacing the, the shoe salesman or replacing the, you know, that's, that's one example, right? Again, as the size of the data grows, a human's ability to analyze it, just go through it, decreases just because we have a, a certain capacity. And so what we really need is automated systems for that. And so I don't think there's, again, I, I don't think that in the short term that AI or machine learning in its present form is actually a viable technology that is not going away, okay, is because we're not trying to do what we tried to do in the past, which is invent a human-like entity, okay? That's not it. We want to just help us navigate the data. And ourselves doesn't even mean 
you know, necessarily companies and analyzing the, you know, it's just about people as people faced with a lot of data and needing to go through it and having systems that help you go through it. That's all that I view this as right now. And whether it's CT scans, where I want to detect where the tumor is instead of actually going through this, you know, having a doctor go through every CT scan, or whether it's a pap smear, or whether it's a collection of, uh, you know, of uh, lamps that I have to pick a lamp from. All of these things fall into this kind of category of very, very simple tasks that are human-like but don't require anything beyond the existing machine learning systems that we have. You know, natural language turns out to be another one of these. So it's really going to be very helpful for us, as we know, to be able to not type, but rather talk to the machines that we interface, right? And it turns out that that's another one of these tasks that can be solved to a sufficient level without requiring human intelligence behind the device, right? And so on. That's really where I see it. Yeah. Cool. So what was the, um, the driving forces behind you founding uh, Neural Magic? What drove you? What was the uh, magic behind Neural Magic or the neurons yeah. behind the Neural Magic? So we really did develop beautiful algorithms and the plan was to go and, and have the government rent thousands of GPUs on AWS in order to run these algorithms. And what we found was that, you know, at the time the GPU that people were using was a, was a Pascal GPU and we were getting on a regular multi-core machine with, I think it was 16 cores, the same speed. So I realized that it's all algorithm. And when you actually look at these algorithms and just a little technically, right? A lot of these machine learning algorithms are actually memory bound. Okay, it's not the compute that makes them run fast. And when, when I realized that, I realized that there's a lot of kind of the algorithmics that I have a lot of experience with, of actually using cache hierarchy, parallelism, you know, the knowledge of how to synchronize uh, processes in order to actually run these algorithms at the same speeds that they run on GPUs, right? So that, that was the impetus for it. And of course, there's an incredible win from staying on commodity hardware rather than having an accelerator because, you know, these accelerators, the GPUs are memory limited because they have thousands of cores that have to access the same memory. So, so they're kind of memory limited. So if you want to do large image stacks and big uh, pieces of data, you're limited by the size of the memory on them. So they're very fast. They deliver a lot of flops but they have these limitations. So if you want to do natural science problems that require a lot of space, okay, they introduce a lot of problems as opposed to CPUs that have an abundance of memory. You can get a, a terabyte of memory on a desktop and it won't cost you even that much, right? So, so there's a big advantage to using CPUs, not to mention the fact that the world has an abundance of CPUs sitting around. And so it was natural to kind of say, oh, wait, I have access to so many CPUs, you know, around me. Why would I go and do this on, on GPUs? And that kind of was the basis. That, that's how Neuromagic uh, came about. Well, what's the eureka moment as an academic thing? You know what? I've got a company here. I've got a product. I've got something that breaks the mold of maybe, maybe academic arena isn't the right frame for what I've just found in the lab. 
Yeah, so I actually, um, it's funny, but I gave a talk to the, um, so we had these algorithms and I, we were very excited using them, you know, in the, in the context of, uh, you know, our lab and kind of thinking of, is this a, an interesting idea, you know, from a commercial point of view, but not, not really believing whether it was or it wasn't, right? And I gave a talk to the Industrial Liaison Program at MIT. There's an audience, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 executives from all kinds of companies. And I was talking about, I, I called our technology a software GPU. And the engine was called XNN at the time. So XNN, the software GPU. And as I walked out of the hall, the Dell representative, somebody from Dell corporate ran after me. He said, wait, wait, we got to sit down and talk. And after that conversation, I realized, yeah, there's a product. Yeah, here's money. Take my money. Yeah. Well, not quite because there was no product, but but at least there it was, it was a lot of enthusiasm. And we had several conversations with Dell Corporate, and it was clear that this is very, very interesting for them, right? So that, that was the start of it. That was when I realized that there was actually a commercial product here. And I have to say that with time, what happened for me is that I, I've learned both the, what the advantages of the accelerators are and what their disadvantages are. And like every technology, you know, in the past, it has its advantage and it has a disadvantage. The big advantage of the accelerators is that you don't have to come up with smart algorithms because you have so much compute. And so right. you're in the start of a field and you don't know what the algorithms are. It makes sense to have accelerators. And it happened to be that NVIDIA's GPUs were available, right? And NVIDIA built a beautiful software stack on top of them. And boom, you don't need to really think through the algorithms. But if you want to and you have time, then you can go for more sophisticated algorithms. And that's usually the next step in the evolution of an area. And that's where we are right now. Everybody is moving towards better algorithms. And as you do that, you don't need as much compute. So I'm kind of saying, you know, that we were at the forefront of this. But it is a trend that is well known in other areas. It's happened many times before in computer science. But what if you merge the two? What if you'll have this very advanced algorithm running on this very advanced hardware? Sure. It's just that the hardware has limitations. And that's where the problem is with the, with the hardware. So I'm all for the hardware, but that hardware is not where the future of this field is going. And let me explain that. I think I've explained this to Moshe in the past. So, so what you, if, if you want to think about artificial intelligence, you want to think, think so, about So just do it slower for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so your brain, if you think about it, you know, your brain is a very sparse computing device. Okay. It's probably doing the same amount of compute as a cell phone. Okay. But it does it on a huge graph, a graph that is about, you know, a, a, at least a petabyte in size. Okay, so if you want to actually build a machine that looks like the brain, then it should have about a cell phone worth of compute on a huge memory that can hold a petabyte of data. Okay, the devices that we're building, the GPUs and all these accelerators are devices that are designed to deliver a petaflop of compute on a cell phone worth of memory. They are the opposite of what we want. Okay. So if we are going to mimic brains, we're building the wrong thing. And probably the answer, at least in the short term, is somewhere in the middle, right? And so a natural thing is to build a device that doesn't have to necessarily have that much compute, but has sufficient memory. 
Okay. It happens to be that CPUs answer that, uh, you know, that need. And so since they have other advantages, like being ubiquitous, it makes sense to start there rather than build a specific device. And that's where, that's where we are, really. Maybe share with us a moment of challenge during this uh, journey of yours. A moment that you, you know, you had the idea, you understood the why, but you faced something and you said, wow, I'm stuck. Yeah, we very quickly built a prototype that delivered crazy speeds. You know, we, we use a combination of sparsification and algorithms that actually allow you to utilize the CPU's memory and you get wonderful speeds. We went to kind of a, of a trade show and we showed this and people were just blown away by the capabilities. But then you have to actually build a product. And this has really been the hardest thing for me, the understanding that there is a real difference from writing between writing a paper getting a technology to actually work in the algorithmic sense and building a product around it. Because it turns out that the product requires so many other things that are mundane, perhaps, but you got to do them right. And they take an enormous amount of time. For me, the biggest challenge is that. First of all, because I have no experience with that. I have a lot of experience with the work really hard on the algorithmic side to make something fast or to make it more accurate and so on, right? But not to build something that is easy for people to use, right? That's really been the huge challenge here. And, and it's a huge challenge in this whole space, by the way. It's not just for neural magic. It's a, it's a challenge for anybody in this machine learning space to build technologies that are both delivering, you know, kind of the accuracy and the performance in terms of speed and are easy for the users to actually utilize. Well, this is interesting. So how, how did you uh, reach that point? What have you done to make it easier? Or did you just find someone that uh, helped you doing? Well, what are you doing? Because I, th- I think you're still, you're still in that challenge in here. So we're still in that challenge. So what we're doing is, so yes. So first of all, I have to say, you are right. It's great, great that you asked, did I hire people? Yes, I did. First of all, I hired a professional VP engineering, okay? This is something that I have now learned to understand what the value of that is. Somebody who's built systems many times. <laughs> that helps because let me tell you, now I understand the learning curve of an academic trying to do this. It's very challenging. It is one of those jobs, you know? And it's funny, but my, my own brother has been a VP engineering and a CTO for many years, and I never really understood what it was that he did. Until I actually had to get one into my company and see what a VP engineering actually does. And so this is the thing. And it's a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see, really. You know, for somebody who's always had, you know, a research group is a bunch of individuals. The professor kind of has a general agenda of what he wants to do. A company is like that too, Nia, right? A company is like that too. We don't have to talk to each other. Yeah, but I'll tell you something. There is this product, which is the combined creation of everybody's minds all together. And on the way there, okay, it all has to hum. A really good an engineering organization that hums is a beautiful thing to watch. And not that I could create one, but I'm just saying watching one is very interesting for me. Very interesting. Yeah, it's a great thing. And when all programmers and pieces come together and so on and so forth, it's just, uh, it's a marvel. Yeah. If I can take a step, a step uh, maybe sideways, Nira, you know, one of the 
the most uh, inspirational parts of your story is actually that you looked around, you found something in the world that, that you wanted to mimic, and then you built it. Or you, you built something that, based on what you saw and what you thought was more efficient. Do, do you find other... Well, first of all, talk to, talk to us a little bit about how you stay open enough. You know, sometimes we get all focused on our world, and by do, focusing means, you know, leaving out the noise. How do you stay open to inspiration like that? And second, where else do you see inspiration that, that you think will, will move technology forward? Well, as an academic, I'll tell you, I do two things as an academic, and I've done that also in the company. So one thing is I continuously go to talks and talk to people endlessly to hear what's going on. That's one thing. That's the, that's the input side. But there is another important side that I think people should do, which I learned from people that are much smarter than me, and that is to always go back to the things that you did and understand why you did them. If there is one thing that I teach my students and I've taught myself, every time when you think you have a perfect thing, it's so great, it's doing so well, that's when you go, you let it sit for a little bit, then you go back and you check why it is you got there. And I guarantee you, and this is what we've been doing in Neural Magic, this is how we get improvements all the time, is because I, after a while we go back and we say, how did we get here? Why did we do this? You know, And when you actually examine that, that's when you come up with the next idea of how to innovate on something. And I'm, I recommend this to anybody who is in, in, you know, in any field almost. Go back after you've let your whatever it was rest a little bit and understand how you got there. And guaranteed, you'll find a better way. It's always like that. And where, where else do you see inspiration for technology going forward from the world around us? What else can we learn from, from kind of the natural systems out there? Well, even the brains of the, of the simplest of animals are ridiculously complex, okay? And it's very hard if you see how sophisticated the algorithm in a fly's, uh, you know, uh, kind of olfactory system is, there is no way that, you know, there isn't a god, if you will. It can't be. There's no way this happens by random sequences of changes. It's a beautiful computer science algorithm. A colleague of mine who's, um, you know, a professor in San Diego actually discovered this mechanism. It's a hashing algorithm that we couldn't come up with. So beautiful. Okay. It's in, a, in a fly's nose. Come on. I mean, it's how could this be? Okay. So I think actually there is an incredible area that is completely untapped. And we would, by the way, love to get people, more people to do this. It's an area where you draw inspiration for computer science algorithms from nature. You know, and the, the nervous system is one, but there are many, many other systems in nature, okay? The systems that plants use for directing themselves to the sun, all the gradient, chemical gradients, all these things are, are wonderful, wonderful mechanisms that we, you know, once in a while, somebody comes up with an idea of how to bring one of those mechanisms into our world. And, you know, this is something that I think is... Um, is a great uh, way to do that. And, and I myself, I mean, we have done that, you know, ourselves in our system, the traces uh, neurons in this uh, block of brain that I talked about, right? One of my uh, brilliant postdocs actually invented an algorithm that just mimics the way, you know, a person does it because that's how it has been done for years. It's that a person sits over these images and just goes and marks the neuron slide after slide after, you know, just goes through them. 
And he built an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm that mimics exactly that process. Okay. So there are a lot of learnings to have from nature that we can just immediately apply in, in what we do. If we go a bit into the, you know, either the near future or the far future, where do you see this uh, field or this ingenuity that you were just describing taking us to? The future of, uh, if you may, deep learning and the advanced algorithms. Where, where can it land or when can it take us to? Yeah, so I think that... Uh, First of all, I think the deep learning is just going to become a very large, pretty much commoditized area of our kind of computer infrastructure. We're just going to use these algorithms to improve the efficiencies of everything that we do. Because we have so much data and we can't analyze it you know, by hand anymore, and there's no time really for people to sit and invent individual algorithms for things, then over time, we are going to build systems that they're not uh, human level intelligent. That's not the issue here, right? They're just systems that learn simple subsets of tasks and get better and better at them. Like for example, in the networking uh, space, okay? I think um, we're not that far away. I don't know how long, but, but where people will use machine learning algorithms that will continuously on a local basis learn uh, a routing pattern and just continuously adjust themselves. So this is something that would make complete sense rather than you know, having people design routing algorithms again and again, just have a system that consists of many, many of these uh, very simple uh, machine learning algorithms that just uh, completely control routing and learn with time. And this kind of, kind of, I'll call it you know, banal systems, right? Are going to actually make the world ridiculously efficient. And that's where I see machine learning in the short term. So that's where in the next uh, decades, this is what's going to become, it's going to be like electricity. We're going to use it everywhere. And we're not even going to even have to know that much about it. It'll just a system, you'll plug it in, it'll learn the task and it'll just do it. And then on the other side is this goal that you talked about, right? Which is going to continue both in academia and in industry. And that is the goal of actually building systems that are, uh, much more aware of the world and actually exhibit other forms of human intelligent behavior that we we would like to have. And those, I think, will require major new breakthroughs. I don't think that the, the type of machine learning that I described before will require new, major new breakthroughs. It's just, we're in the cycle of progress. It's just going to get better and better. But the other step we need some breakthroughs and you, you cannot time these. You can't time these breakthroughs. My hope is that we short circuit these breakthroughs by actually having an understanding of how neural circuits work. So, so my work, my academic work is about finding ways to shortcut the whole process by seeing, for example, what a, a fly does, what a mouse does. And if we can understand those systems, right, try to get a better feel of what it is that we need to build. And those are, it's not like it's tomorrow morning, but the technology is getting better. So do you see a future in which those systems will also innovate? Sure. I'm always the optimist. Yeah, of course. To get to a place where we will not be able to understand them without an, uh, you know, an added system on our head to, to connect with them. 
without yeah. an AI that will uh, will Other will dumb AI it down for to us. Able to talk to these devices, yes, totally. I have no doubt that we'll get there. Whether it's going to be good or bad for us, it's a different question. But but I have no doubt we'll get there. It will be interesting to be invited by uh, by a machine to a podcast. <laughs> I know that your uh, your you cycle between the academic world and the and the startup world. You know, on your next cycle back to the academic world, what are you going to take from the? You know, we talked a lot about what you take from academic to the enterprise world. What are you going to take? From the enterprise world back to academia. Well, first of all, I'm going to take it a lot easier in academia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think I've uh, I've actually become a slightly better manager. I think that's one thing that I'm going to take okay. back. Sure. I think the other thing is that you know I've done very very theoretical things and then done a lot of practical, very pragmatic algorithms, and I think that I'm ready now to go really into a place where I am an observer. And that's what I'm going to do, I think, in my next stint in academia is a lot more of observation of the natural world. I think I want to uh, actually use the tools that we've built and try to, to be more of an observer rather than an inventor of, of algorithms. And this has a lot to do not with burnout from the startup and so on, but that I have kind of understood that it's something that I like. To try to figure out some existing thing and how it works. Yeah, we've started with a personal question. I'd like to uh, kind of uh, end with another one. In your journey of being an entrepreneur, what are your you know uh, lessons? What are the things that you like in being an entrepreneur, and what are the things that you will kind of uh, try to avoid in the next round? Huh? I've learned how to execute better. I think that. When I started out, I, I didn't understand the, I'll say this, and this has been told to me by so many people, and I didn't really understand it. You know, when I started out, my, my VCs told me, listen, idea is 25% of a company, 75% is execution, okay? And I thought, ah, you know, it's like, what are they talking about? And, and now I understand, I'll say, idea is 10%. <laughs> 90% is execution. And execution doesn't mean execution involves a lot of ideas, right? But it is about execution. So if I, if I do another company, then I will be aware that it is about building a team and building a, a mechanism for execution. Because that, you know, if you have a good team and, you have a, and it's executing, you can do almost anything. Ideas come. Ideas are cheap. Execution is hard. the professor from MIT. <laughs> really. It's really execution is so important. So important. That's my take from the business world. And I, and I wish I could tell you that I'm going to take that back to academia. Okay. But I don't think so. I don't think academia works like this. No, if you bring this to the academia, you'll probably bring, uh, we'll, they will throw you away or something. That's right. They will throw me away. And, and also, you know, grad students will move away from me. This is not what interests uh, people in academia, but I have learned that. And so if I ever do another company, it'll be about that. Great. Any closing remark from your end, Moshe? No, this has been great. I, I learned something uh, new, which is uh, really the goal. So that, that's been pretty cool. And I hope you're staying safe in these days of Corona. And uh, at least you have a picture of the outside behind you. If not the outside, at least a picture of it. 
to remind us of what we're missing in the natural world. Fair enough. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Anir. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.